I loved creatures, snakes, butterflies, birds from the time I was, I could remember. In a, in a, in a physical way, in a spiritual way, I am part of a multi-species community. This is 26-year-old Yuan Evis. Many of you who are listening today, and if you are especially from India, you might already be knowing who Yuan is. He is a Chennai-born ecologist and naturalist from Tamil Nadu, a state located on the southeastern coast of India. Yuan is someone who strongly believes that our landscapes should be part of our identity. If there is an erosion of coast, it would be felt as an erosion of identity and which leaves one uh, homeless in a very spiritual sense. You can find a different home, but then you are left uprooted. So do this sense of belongingness and the landscape being part of your identity resonate with you as well? This is Whispers of the Earth, a listening journey where we talk stories about traditional practices and cultural beliefs that have shaped our understanding of the natural world. I am Pooja Chaudhary and join me as I speak to communities, conservationists and youths from around the globe who are working to preserve these timeless practices and have adopted some very unique approaches to transfer this knowledge to the next generation. In this episode, I am in conversation with Yuan Nevis, who till date has guided hundreds of young minds to connect them to the natural world. How much of the natural world did you learn about while in school, which you still remember? <laughs> I surely didn't remember much. And this is exactly what Yuan is changing in India through his alternate learning spaces. He will share why the interconnectedness of age-old languages and ecologies are so important in environmental conservation. But for him, not all traditional knowledge is worth preserving and he would rather focus on the practice of knowledge making. So to begin with, I went a little back in time. 10 years ago when Yuan as a 16-year-old started his journey of being a nature educator. What motivated him and what did he want to achieve by this? From 16 years of age, I was conducting biodiversity-based science enrichment programs in the village schools around, uh, utter poverty-ridden uh, places, but with good children uh, who are in difficult socioeconomic conditions. So I told the teachers, see, you know what? I'll make the kids improve their marks. Their dropout rates were high. There was caste segregation, all of that. Um, so... I did these workshops once a week for all the schools, three schools, then five schools. And children's marks improved, their curiosity and intensity to learn improved. What I have discovered through a decade of being a nature educator, I have not met, I've met hundreds of children, various socioeconomic backgrounds, different geographies. I've not met a single five-year-old, eight-year-old child who's not utterly enthralled by it the living world. On their own terms, one might want to learn the names, other might want to physically engage, the other uh, could, it could be linguistic, whatever. The natural world is a deep necessity for young children. And then when that sensitivity is neglected, it kind of shuts after a point. So I think I used to feel like, oh my God, I was born with this. And later I have discovered that everybody is born with it. All children are born with it what E.O. Wilson calls biophilia. Um, what I wanted to achieve was when for, for these schools and children in 
in their conditions. I have discovered in myself and with few other examples, I know very well now at the time I was just you know, 16, 17, uh, when learning is emplaced in the lived realities of children, especially in the engageable natural world, then the motivation to learn is intrinsic. It means I want to learn, I want to, I will find a way, make the way to uh, learn the skills okay. or read the text, whatever it is. As opposed to when there is an abstraction, a disconnect between everyday life, uh, the, ex the experienced connections with other people, beings, landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, so how important do you think are educational interventions in creating environmental stewardship among youth and children? Uh, educational interventions have a huge role to play because through education that that first 15 years of a human being's life is the most formative time of the human nervous system. It builds the worldviews, the beliefs, the tacit subconscious perspectives, which we don't lose in a lifetime. And so certain experiences during that time become extremely important uh, for a kind of cultural and political reimagination. Important thing, however, for all kinds of conservation is to have landscape as part of one's identity. So if there is an erosion of coast, it would be felt as an erosion of identity and which leaves one uh, homeless in a very spiritual sense. You can find a different home but then you are left uprooted. That is very important. You spoke about identity and belongingness, Ivan. So how can we be more aware of this connection? Yeah. So, you know, one very important thing uh, for conservation is to know the names is very important because name ensures it occupies a specific place in your mind. I know of stories where knowing the names creates a certain resistance to you know, activities of destruction, as opposed to imagine not knowing any tree names around you. If it is cut or not, it doesn't matter to the mind. So one of the things we did, and you can actually download this on our uh, website uh, of Palluvir Trust, um, the, the trust we run, um, is a 160 uh, species field guide to the coastal fauna of Chennai. And for all of that, we collected locally used names of the species. And each of it has a very functional, poetic, sometimes mythological connotation. Alayati Kade. Alayati means to uh, pacify a wave. Is the name for mangroves. Uh, that sense of buffering wave velocity uh, is there in the way of speaking itself. If, if I speak mangrove, I don't know what it is. Mangrove. Okay, it's not, it's not my language. Uh, I, I don't know its roots. Alayati immediately it evokes a landscape and a, and a verb and an action as if the tree was living. Kovanji um, is another name which comes to mind. It's a small sea snail which lives on the intertidal zone. 
it looks just like an ivy goat and the size of an ivy goat. So Kovaka is ivy goat, so they call it Kovanji. Other kinds of names. So these names, uh, the elders, they could name everything. They had a name for everything. They had multiple names for everything. They have named multiple names for growth stages of fish. An anchovy. I don't know if you enjoy eating anchovies. <laughs> uh, but uh, small fishes, which you can actually bite and eat off the bones. Yeah. When it's small, it's called netili. When it's big, it's called terangumi, and so on. And each with its own story. That sort of vividness of perception is required for place to merge with your selfhood. Right. Mm. So how commonly mm. are these um, words still used in the local language? And uh, are these words Tamil or... Tamil, uh, Tamil. I'm speaking about yeah. Tamil words. Tamil. But uh, I've collected yeah. words from other parts of India, for instance, I remember having a vivid conversation with uh, a fisher elder from uh, Nashi in Goa. And the word, uh, which I believe he himself said, you know, the yeah, young folks don't use it anymore. Surti Bhutti. I'm mm. surely pronouncing it badly because it's Konkani. Uh, I don't speak Konkani, I'm Tamil. Uh, means tidal variation. You know, neap tide, spring tide, high tide, low tide. Surti Bhutti is also the word for mood swings or, or, or the changes mm. in emotions. And so tides are spoken of as temperamental changes of the sea, as if it had emotions. And you know, that's brilliant. That blew my mind. Because the ocean is seen as a living being with moods, being violent and angry, being calm and soothing and giving. And, and so, so words spring from those words. You went to Hawaii, right? Yes. So there's a beautiful story from there about um, Honu. Honu is the green sea turtle. Hmm. And the Spanish came into Hawaii and they banned the local language. And interestingly, during that time, the green sea turtle almost went extinct on that coast from hunting as well as other kinds of habitat neglect. And then when there was a language revival later on, when you know they got independence, Honu was brought into speaking. And with Honu came its totemization, its mythologies. It's, it's the guardian of children. It's the, um, I believe the fisher, fisher folk there and with the turtles had a certain mutualism of one leading another to the fish and having that sort of an understanding, kind of evolved understanding. So when Honu was brought back as a way of manner of speaking, it drove conservation efforts because of what the word stood for and it brought back the green sea turtle in numbers. <laughs> Yuan just transported me back to Hawaii, one of my favorite places in this world. And for me, during my brief stay in Hawaii, it actually reawakened my realization about the innate relationship that we share with the nature. And the local Hawaiian community actually sees themselves as part of nature and not separate from it. And did you know that in some countries, nature even has legal rights, uh, just like humans? For instance, nature has equal rights as humans in Bolivia and Ecuador. And in New Zealand, a Maori tribe has successfully fought to have their rivers and ancestors given the same legal rights as person. And I sincerely believe that the knowledge that comes along with such an inseparable bond is very vital for conservation. 
However, as I said in the beginning, for Yuan, not all traditional knowledge might be worth conserving, and he would rather focus on knowledge making. So, what is this knowledge making that Yuan is talking about? You know, in my practice and experience, I have learned to differentiate between two things, because there is traditional knowledge which is relevant, which uh, is resonant with the sort of thing we are speaking. and there is obsolete traditional knowledge also hmm. and there is non traditional knowledge which is extremely relevant it has got to do with the practices of knowledge making so so if i were to give you an example i differentiate in my mind and this is from uh, the philosopher tim ingold uh, exhabitation and inhabitation there are process knowledge making which happens to inhabiting being in an ecology a landscape letting it be part of my identity and me its identity there's a certain knowledge making which comes out of that and there is a certain knowledge making which comes out of exhabitation which is i see the landscape for a certain group of people as an externality and my practice of knowledge making comes from that externalization and separation this can very well be traditional i'll tell you one of the things we do we run a one year apprenticeship program for children of the fisher community along the chennai coast mm. and it's been working out really well because we base their home beach and other biodiversity areas as rich living learning spaces beyond any classroom can offer they have practices of observing bands uh not catching certain kinds of fish the dolphins turtles having specific nets for specific species going out into the ocean with a deep sense of calling the winds with pronouns you know as if it were a living being going out with a specific catch in mind i want to catch prawns i want to let everything else alone those are practices of inhabitation and these are often communities who are at the front line of conserving often in the at the front line of conserving coastal landscapes all marginalized communities are feel the pressure of economic powers more than anybody else so there is a day by day erasure of what was traditional ancestral and a succumbing to the needs and violence of you know larger economy you know the capitalist market you go and speak to a 30 year old uh, what they know is a minute fraction of what a 60 70 year old knows and can and just see in the landscape the vividness of speech in their descriptions of what the ocean is what its mm. creatures are there's a there's a exponential difference supposed to you ask a, a a youth they can't name anything they are doing their going about their livelihood to make money and when i said youth i meant that there is an erasure of knowledge due to economic pressures i mm. put the blame on the economic system right not in any way the youth because what you extremely healthy thing which is happening is young people still with unconditioned thinking questioning minds are looking at this 
and saying what the hell is happening mm. this is not the life i want to live or this is not how things should go what is this world you have left me with and why do you tell me to have more children you know so that they can live in a worse place that sort of a an awakening and uh, moral courage to question deeply entrenched rigid structures uh, you find only in youth for instance when covid happened lockdown happened government saw it fit to pass a lot of contentious environmental clearances so the national board for wildlife approved 42 different uh, clearances in large wilderness areas you know limestone mining in gir Uh, a pharma company in Vedandangal, uh, a dam in the Dibang Valley, so many more, you know, coal mine in Dehing Pattai. Yeah. People who saw the the corruption and stupidity in all of this were young people. EIA 2020 notification, which was a dilution of existing environmental laws, was led by young people. Dehing Pattai campaign was led by young people. Did you see yes. that campaign? Take Instagram every morning. There would be hundreds of articles. Yes. next day hundreds yes. of artwork I am because they couldn't go to the streets yeah i am it was everywhere yeah um and purely no on the ground action it made the cm declare it as a national park mm. yeah that i i've read this in uh, a beautiful book a poetry compilation of um, first nation poetry by joy haryo where there's a line I'm not fighting for the river I am the river fighting itself. Uh you saw that in that campaign actually yes, yeah. Yes yes mm. yes. I I loved this conversation you are you actually shared so much of good things so much of knowledge and uh, maybe to wrap it up I just want to ask you is there anything else that you want to share with us today? It's really yes. nice that uh, these kind of conversations can happen, and people ask these questions. I'm interested about such things, and uh, amplify it in a certain way. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for having me. And with that, we come to the end of this episode of Whispers of the Earth. This episode has been produced by me, your host Pooja Chaudhary. Audio credits and work of our expert guests are available in our show notes. Until then keep listening to your natural world save it protect it and most importantly respect it